Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. On May 23, 1992, a group of men stood atop a hill on the outskirts of Palermo in Sicily. From their perch, they watched a deserted stretch of highway. One of the men raised a bulky gray cell phone to his ear. He listened for a few moments, then gave his compatriots a sharp nod. Their target was approaching. A convoy of three vehicles rumbled up the road. Three armed policemen rode in the first, four more rode in the last. Between them, a white, heavily armored Fiat Chroma carried notorious anti-mafia prosecutor Giovanni Falcone and his wife. In the 80s, Falcone led the charge against the Cosa Nostra Mafia in Sicily. During Italy's infamous Maxi trial, he helped convict 342 of its members. Now he was on his way back to Palermo from Rome. As the vehicles trundled past an old refrigerator on the side of the highway, the man with the cell phone whispered, Vai, the Italian word for go. Seconds later, 13 barrels filled with TNT exploded in a hidden tunnel beneath the road. The blast launched the convoy into the air and instantly killed the officers in the front car. Falcone and his wife were thrown through their Fiat's front window. Each of them are reported to have died on impact. In one fell swoop, the Sicilian Mafia silenced their biggest threat and sent a powerful message. To defy the Cosa Nostra was to seal your fate. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian Mafia. Its origins are shrouded in mystery, but it's believed that the Cosa Nostra, from its place in the shadows, has wielded great power in Italy since the mid-19th century, crushing any opposition in its iron grip. This week, we'll uncover the origin of the mafiosi, examine their initiation rituals, and discuss their codes of honor. Next week, we'll follow the long arm of the Cosa Nostra to the United States of America. With strongholds on both sides of the Atlantic, this hidden organization created an international organized crime empire. We have all that and more coming up. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It all began with a lemon tree. Moorish invaders first brought citrus to Sicily in the 900s when they conquered the island. They planted lemons, tangerines, and bergamot oranges, which thrived in Sicily's hot Mediterranean climate. Almost a millennium later, in the 1870s, the area surrounding the Sicilian capital of Palermo became known as Concadoro, or the Shell of Gold. According to several accounts, the region got its nickname for two reasons. The thousands of lemon trees that dotted the coast and the millions of gold pieces they fetched from citrus buyers. But the Conca d'Oro wasn't just a breeding ground for citrus. With the immensely profitable lemon trade, everyone in Palermo wanted a piece of the action. Greed flourished, and the rich soil provided the perfect environment for corruption to take root. Since the 1840s, whispers of roving, organized gangs spread across the island of Sicily. But it wasn't until the 1870s that the rumors crossed over to Italy's mainland. In August 1875, the Italian Minister of the Interior received a letter. Its author, Surgeon Dr. Gaspari Galati, had a terrifying story to tell. Three years earlier, in 1872, Dr. Galati acquired the Fondoriella, a four-hectare lemon and tangerine farm outside the city of Palermo. But along with the citrus trees, Dr. Galati inherited a problem, its warden, Benedetto Carollo. A swaggering brute of a man, Carollo ruled over the workers with an iron fist. He resented Galati and wanted to take the lucrative fondo from him. Carollo came up with a plan. He'd sabotage the lemon harvest to drive Galati out, force the price down, and then take the land for himself. Carollo skimmed profits from the lemons sent to market. He pilfered coal from the steam-powered harvesters. He even stole the product itself, leaving Galati unable to fulfill his customers' orders. By 1874, Dr. Galati was on to Carollo's scheme. He dismissed Carollo and hired a new warden. In the weeks after Carollo's removal, Dr. Galati's friends, businessmen, and civil servants advised him to rehire Carollo, but the doctor stood firm. He would not be bullied off of his own property. Gunshots split the sea salt-tinged air of the Fondoriella. Galati ran towards the sound. On a narrow path between the lemon trees, he discovered the body of his newest warden, 
lying face down in the soil. He had been shot in the back. Dr. Galati reported the death to the police, insisting that Carollo was behind the slaying. But the police ignored him and arrested another two men, who they later released due to a lack of evidence. They didn't arrest any other suspects. Soon, threatening letters arrived at Dr. Galati's door, demanding he reinstate Carollo or another man of honor. If not, the writer threatened Galati and his family with a barbarous end. But Galati ignored the threats. He wasn't intimidated. He was incensed. He wouldn't capitulate to the demands of a neighborhood thug. So he hired a third warden. Again, Galati's defiance had consequences. An assassin shot the new warden almost as soon as he was hired. Luckily, the man survived, and he identified Carollo as one of his three attackers. The third warden's testimony was all the Palermo police needed to build a case against Carollo. As the trial approached, Galati rejoiced, hoping his thuggish adversary would finally be behind bars. But before the trial, the injured warden met with Antonino Giamona, a wealthy landowner from the nearby village of Uditore. Giamona led a group called the Tertiaries of St. Francis, a religious organization run out of Uditore's Catholic Church. But Giamona and his companions were hardly peaceful men of God. Immediately after the meeting, the injured warden recanted his statement incriminating Carollo. There would be no trial. Fearing for his life, Dr. Galati and his family fled Sicily. When he arrived safely on the mainland in Naples, Galati discovered the truth, the intimidation, the violence, and the deliberate inaction of the police were each part of a plot orchestrated by a criminal enterprise. Dr. Galati was an early victim of the Cosa Nostra. Antonino Giamona, the landowner from the next village, headed the Uditore Mafia. The villainous warden Benedetto Carollo was likely the equivalent of a lieutenant, and they'd organized a campaign of terror to scare Galati off his land. Even the police were complicit, happy to look the other way in exchange for a substantial kickback. Though Sicily had policemen, magistrates, and governors, Galati claimed they were all for show. Instead, he believed a secret shadow state owned the underworld and exerted its influence on the legitimate government. It even had a place in the Catholic Church. Dr. Galati's story is one of the only historical reports we have of mafia activity in the late 1800s, but it's representative of the Cosa Nostra's modus operandi. However, they probably weren't as sophisticated as the pair-government criminal syndicate that Galati imagined. At least, not yet. The Cosa Nostra started as a loose assemblage of independent criminal gangs, operating all over the island. These groups, called Cosce or clans, ran protection rackets targeting the lucrative citrus industry. Cosce threatened landowners or merchants with violence and sabotage, to save their business, their targets had to pay a cosca, the singular form of cosce, for protection. This could mean paying bribes, employing mafiosi, or even granting partial control of their business to the mafia. The cosce grew powerful, thanks to the political upheaval in Sicily at the end of the 1800s. 
Italy as we know it today only came into existence in 1870, when the last of the various kingdoms and states of the Italian peninsula unified into one nation. In the transition between the old government and the new, Kosce were able to operate with little fear of the fledgling justice system. During the first days of the Italian state in Sicily, it seemed like everyone was running a racket. Citrus growers sabotaged their competitors, only stopping when they were paid off. Artisans threatened customers with violence if they took their business elsewhere. The police actively contributed to this culture. Instead of prosecuting a crime, they'd arrange a mediation between the criminal and victim in return for an under-the-table consultation fee. The Kostche were simply the most organized of these rackets, and as they grew in power, they sought out more influential allies, like local government officials. They partnered with ambitious leaders and solidified their relationships by helping them climb the political ladder. During elections, Kostche farmed votes and stuffed ballot boxes. They launched disinformation campaigns against their representatives' political rivals, or even directly threatened their enemies with violence. Once elected, the politician repaid the mafia in work contracts and salaried positions. Some were real, but many were simply fronts for funneling money. The politicians then worked against any laws that could stop the mafia's operations. Like Antonino Giamona in Uditore, the Kostche found it beneficial to cultivate relationships within the church. In Sicily, the Catholic Church was the center of spiritual and communal life. Even today, the Catholic Church is integral to many Sicilians and Italians. Almost 79% of Italians identify as Catholic. Back in the 1800s, mafiosi partnered with priests, deacons, even bishops to amplify their power over their desired territory. And by the end of the century, the Mafia had laid the groundwork for total control of Sicily. Where they didn't have friends, they had their terrifying reputation. And the Mafiosi had no qualms about silencing their enemies with violence. It was a recipe for total domination. Up next, the Cosa Nostra seizes control of Sicily through any means necessary. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The Cosa Nostra first appeared sometime in the 1840s as a group of loosely organized criminal families. At some point, these families, or Cosce, formed a larger organized network that would later be known as the Cosa Nostra. As they gained favor and status with politicians and the Catholic Church, the Cosa Nostra became the puppet master of Sicilian life. That said, it's hard to pin down exactly when the power shifted in the Cosa Nostra's favor. For most of its existence, the Sicilian Mafia kept itself invisible from historical records. 
When mafia informant Tommaso Buscetta testified against the Cosa Nostra in 1985, it was the first time an Italian mafioso ever went on record against the organization. Most of what we know about the mafia, we know from Buscetta's trial. When Buscetta became an informant, or pentito, against the Cosa Nostra, he revealed the organization's deepest secrets. He not only gave the names of the players involved, but brought law enforcement into the world of the mafia. Buscetta confirmed and expanded upon the two uniting principles of the Cosa Nostra's many sects, their code of conduct known as Omerta and their secretive initiation ritual. These were some of the most powerful weapons in the Cosa Nostra's arsenal. They first appeared sometime in the late 1800s and are still part of the Mafia's structure today. Oftentimes, the Cosa Nostra initiated political and economic allies in order to control them. A Cosca would ask their target, say a politician, to join them. It was quite literally an offer they couldn't refuse. If they did, the Cosca would destroy their career. Once they were a member, they were subject to the Mafia's powerful code of silence and the deadly repercussions for breaking the rules. If they were even suspected of speaking to the police, they could be killed. In the beginning, the ceremony to become a Mafia Combinato, or what Americans call a made man, looked similar to a Masonic ritual. In the early 1800s, Freemasonry, a fraternal organization, became popular amongst the Italian middle class. The lasting influence of its sacred symbols and secret oaths filtered down into the hierarchy of the Cosa Nostra. According to the evidence we have, this Freemason-inspired initiation ritual has not changed much since the beginning of the Cosa Nostra. When citrus farmer Dr. Galati sent his account to the Minister of the Interior of Italy in 1875, the letter prompted a subsequent request for an additional report from the Palermo Chief of Police. The police memorandum marked the first time anyone had written down the Cosa Nostra's initiation ritual. That report closely resembled Tommaso Buscetta's account of his initiation, which he described to authorities in 1985. For over 100 years, the Cosa Nostra has initiated new members using essentially the same ceremony. It begins when you're summoned to the home of a powerful man from the community, perhaps a landowner, a farmer, or even a government official. You open the door to a dimly lit basement. The man who summoned you is there, along with several other men in dark suits. They gesture for you to be seated. It's only after a series of initial questions are posed that they reveal the reason for your meeting. You're being asked to join the secret brotherhood of the Cosa Nostra. You suspected this. No more than a few weeks ago, a member of the neighborhood Cosca approached you to notify you of your candidacy. You've already shown your loyalty in the period between your nomination and now. You were asked to do a service for the Cosca. You may have shaken down a business owner or intimidated a witness. You may even have committed a murder. Throughout the trial period, members of the Cosca may have reminded you that you were not a mafioso. You were a non-entity, a cipher, a zero. And if you were caught, there would be little mafia support to help you. But your invitation tonight has changed all that. You've proved your worth. 
The man at the head of the table motions for you to rise. He asks if you have heard of Cosa Nostra. You do not answer. No man of honor ever acknowledges that the Cosa Nostra exists. He asks more questions. He says, are you prepared to give up everything to the organization? Will you die for it? Will you kill for it without a question? To each question, you answer in the Sicilian dialect, C, yes. You're presented with a small picture of the Virgin Mary. It's a scene from the Annunciation. You see that Mary has her head bowed as she listens to the angel Gabriel. It's the moment she learned that she would be the mother of Jesus. They hand you a second object, a small, sharp knife. The mafioso asks you to prick your finger, so you press the point of the knife hard into your thumb until blood appears. You rub the blood on the image, staining the card crimson. You offer it back to the men at the table and take an oath of silence and loyalty. You swear fealty to the organization to never put family or your own life before it. You swear to have complete, unquestioning obedience to your capo, your leader. And most importantly, you swear to uphold Omerta, the code of silence. As you speak your oath, the man at the head of the table lights a match. He holds it to the image of Mary. You watch as it catches. The edge of the golden painting smolders, then explodes into a bright orange flame. As the image is consumed by the fire, they ask you to repeat these words. Should I betray the organization, my flesh will burn just like the Virgin Mary. When the fire fades and the ashes fall, it's over. The assembled men greet you as their brother. You are family now. You have joined the Koska, and there's no going back. Though there might be slight variations in rules and rituals between Kosche, or Mafia families, the entire society of the Cosa Nostra is rooted in the code of Omerta. Omerta is most likely taken from the word for humility, umilta in Italian and umirta in the Sicilian dialect. Back in 1864, Italian patriot Turisi Colonna described the tenets of Omerta that, as far as we know, still stand today. Colonna wrote, in its rules, this evil sect regards any citizen who approaches a military policeman and talks to him, or even exchanges a word or greeting with him, as a villain to be punished with death. Such a man is guilty of a horrendous crime against humility. In broad strokes, to be a mafioso is to remain silent. You're barred from speaking openly about your status or the actions of your cosca. Talking with the law was so forbidden that in some areas, even being seen with a policeman could mean death at the hands of your brothers. The law of Omerita extends to every area of mafia life. Nothing is discussed publicly. When two mafiosi from different Kosche meet, they must be introduced by a third party. Usually this third party will speak in code, saying things like, he is a friend of ours, or you two are the same as me. The word mafia is never uttered aloud. 
even the name Cosa Nostra is a euphemism, which translates to our thing. It's a vague term meant to keep anyone from overhearing the organization's secrets. In an unrelated conversation, Sicilians could use the phrase Cosa Nostra to refer to almost anything. Our farm or our book club could be described as Cosa Nostra. The vague term makes it easy for the Cosa Nostra to hide in plain sight and to embody Omerta. While Omerta is the defining rule of the Cosa Nostra, there are some other universal codes that Combinato, or made men, are expected to follow. First, no man of honor should be involved with another man's wife, especially not another mafioso. They should not gamble, take income from sex work, or parade around their wealth. Men who do these things are thought to be weak-willed and unreliable, and therefore likely to betray the Cosca. Initiates also must be completely obedient. The will of the Cosca should be put before family, church, or business. If a mafioso broke any of these rules, the punishment was almost always death. If your brother, uncle, or cousin violated these laws, you would have to carry out their sentence to prove your loyalty. If you refused to execute your own blood, you would both be killed. And the threat of violence wasn't the only reason the initiates stayed loyal. One of the reasons why the Cosa Nostra has lasted so long is its rigid adherence to tradition and structure. At the bottom are the soldiers, the lower-level mafiosi, who perform grunt work such as violence, intimidation, collection of bribes, or murder. Above the soldiers are the capo di Cina, who supervise groups of 10 soldiers. Then comes the elected boss of the Cosca. This boss oversees the capo di Cina and has several advisors called consiglieri. Three cosce that control adjoining territories form a mandamento, or district. Each district chooses an individual to represent them in the central government of the Cosa Nostra, the Commission. The Commission oversees every operation of the Cosa Nostra. Its members are the most powerful bosses who rule over the most influential mandamentos. And the Commission makes decisions that chart the course of history. As it grew more powerful, the Mafia developed built-in protection at every level. Members and politicians kept silent to avoid retribution. Uninvolved citizens rarely spoke out as they were terrified of becoming a target. This culture of intimidation and fear protected the Mafia from any effort to eradicate it. And after years of struggle, Sicily finally came under the Cosa Nostra's control. That's when the men of honor turn their sights outward and across the sea. Up next, the Cosa Nostra finds a new foothold in the United States. Now, back to the story. For most of the early 20th century, the Cosa Nostra grew in power. They got involved in politics, bribing and threatening politicians into quietly supporting their criminal activities. When Italy joined World War I, they tightened their grasp on Sicily with outright violence. On November 3, 1915, four months into the war, Mayor Bernardino Vero left the town hall in Corleone, Sicily. He was heading home to his partner and new baby girl, Giuseppina. 
Vero walked quickly, hoping to get to his house before the rain soaked through his clothes. He turned the corner onto Via Tribuna when the first bullet hit him in his left side. Ignoring the pain, Vero turned and pulled his own pistol from his holster. He wore the gun to guard against exactly this, an ambush by mafiosi assassins. He fired one shot before a hail of gunfire came from the stable across the street. Vero fell forward as five bullets riddled his body. A man stepped out of the stable and walked cautiously to where Vero lay bleeding on the ground. He knelt on the small of Vero's back and aimed a pistol at the back of his head. The hitman fired four times into Vero's skull and then shot a final bullet into his temple. He left Vero's mangled body in the street a grim warning of what happened to those who crossed the Cosa Nostra. Vero was a divisive figure in Corleone. A devoted socialist, he'd clashed many times with the church and the Italian government. Before becoming mayor, he'd been jailed multiple times and had advocated for universal suffrage and launched tax strikes. He dedicated his career to fighting for the Sicilian peasants, most of whom still lived in a feudal-type society, beholden to wealthy landlords. While his rabble-rousing got him elected mayor, it made him deeply unpopular amongst certain groups. His ideals threatened the wealthy upper class, who largely supported the Mafia. Bernardino Vero's murder happened in broad daylight, at the center of Corleone, but it barely made a blip in the news. The whole country's attention was focused on the war. The battles on the Italian border provided a convenient cover for the Cosa Nostra's violent dealings. Its influence continued to go unnoticed when World War I ended in 1919. Rather than worry about the Cosa Nostra, public attention turned to the political upheaval spreading across Italy. In the post-war period, socialists made unprecedented political gains across Italy. They won elected positions, formed unions and social clubs, and worked to make Italy a socialist state. This threatened fascists, veterans, and the upper and middle classes, who didn't want to lose their wealth or authority to the peasants. When fascists lost out at the polls, they turned to violence. Beginning in 1922, fascist leader Benito Mussolini led his followers in a march across Italy, throwing out socialists and seizing power city by city. On January 3, 1925, Mussolini asserted his supreme rule in Italy in a speech to Parliament. His coup was a success, and he installed himself as the dictator of the new fascist Italian state. Mussolini deployed his troops to suppress opposition throughout Italy. They threw communist and socialist lawmakers in jail without trial. They rounded up dissenting citizens and sent many to internment camps on Italian islands. But Mussolini knew there were more dangerous foes than political dissidents. 
On New Year's Day 1926, almost a year to the day after he seized power, Mussolini launched his most ambitious offensive yet, a war against organized crime in Sicily. The night of January 1st, forces led by fascist enforcer Cesare Mori surrounded the mafia stronghold of Ganji, Sicily. Mori was known as the Iron Prefect for his brutal treatment of the mafia. When the local Cosca heard he was coming, their members scattered. Some hid in secret rooms in their homes, others camped in the mountains outside of town. Mori's men cut telephone and telegraph wires. They blocked all roads into or out of Ganji. No mafiosi would escape Mori's wrath. The Iron Prefect's black-shirted forces crashed over Ganji like a tidal wave. They slaughtered the Mafia's cattle in the streets. They burst into homes and arrested suspected mafiosi. If there were none present, they'd hold women and children as hostages. They even slept in Mafia homes while their owners camped out in the bitter cold of the countryside. After days of this treatment, the Cosa Nostra reluctantly concluded that they simply couldn't win. Many of the mafiosi in hiding turned themselves in to Mori's forces. By the siege's end, Mori had eradicated all mafia presence in Ganji, arrested 130 fugitives and around 300 accomplices. Mussolini sent a messenger to Ganji with his praise. It famously said, Fascism has cured Italy of many of its wounds. It will cauterize the sore of crime in Sicily with a red-hot iron, if need be. The crackdown on the Mafia was wildly popular in Italy and Sicily. Many Sicilians saw it as a push for freedom, a way to get rid of the criminal elements that had run their island for generations. Throughout the 1920s, the Iron Prefect tore through Sicily, arresting more than 11,000 suspected mafiosi. Any remaining Cosce fled underground. During Mussolini's 20-year reign in Italy, the mafia melted into the shadows. It's important to note some context here. In the earliest days of Mussolini's rise to power, many Italian citizens didn't see him in the same fearful light we do today. The fascists claimed that they had the cure for all that ailed post-war Italy, from ending unemployment to providing aid to World War I veterans. One of Mussolini's greatest tools was propaganda. He used it to convince Italians that a terrifying social revolution was on the way and only he could stop it. Eradicating the Cosa Nostra was another popular policy Mussolini used to gain favor in Sicily. Sicilians rejoiced feeling Mussolini could expel the criminal mafia gangs from their island for good. Though Mussolini silenced the Cosa Nostra in Sicily, the organization didn't grind to a halt, it just moved elsewhere. In the early 1900s, the mafia had laid the groundwork for a robust international enterprise. While they suspended their activities in Sicily, they moved to an entirely new arena, America.
Between 1900 and 1913, more than 800,000 Sicilians emigrated to the United States, and as fascism took hold, at least 500 confirmed mafiosi made the journey. A large number of Sicilians quickly established a stronghold in Manhattan on Elizabeth Street in a neighborhood they called Elisabetta Stretta. When Mussolini launched his assault on the Sicilian Mafia, the mafiosi who fled to the United States found a haven waiting for them. And in the United States, business was booming. Soon enough, the streets of New York were as violent as Palermo. In the 1920s and 1930s, a war raged in New York. Giuseppe Joe Masseria, the head of the East Harlem-based Morello family, led one battalion. Joe and his shrewd lieutenant, Charles Lucky Luciano, tried to gain control of all organized crime in New York City. On the other side was Salvatore Maranzano, the head of the Brooklyn-based Castellamarise gang a mafioso who fled the Iron Prefect's crackdown in Sicily. Maranzano and his protege, Joe Bonanno, wanted New York City for themselves. Both factions were fighting for the very soul of the city, the control of the illegal alcohol industry. During Prohibition, Italian and Sicilian-led gangs controlled production, packaging, and transportation of illegal alcohol throughout the country. Between 1919 and 1933, when Prohibition ended, alcohol operations earned an estimated $2 billion on the black market. And the Mafia used these impressive profits to control the authorities. Soon enough, police captains, politicians, and judges throughout the United States were all on the Cosa Nostra's payroll. And they were happy enough to look the other way when the bullets started flying. Between 1930 and 1931, the Castellamarise gang clashed violently with Masseria's forces. Both families sidelined their lucrative prohibition business to launch increasingly deadly attacks. Finally, to stop the violence, Lucky Luciano agreed to betray Joe Masseria. On April 15, 1931, Lucky set up a lobster lunch for himself and Masseria at Nuova Villa Tomorrow, one of Masseria's favorite restaurants. The two were playing cards before dessert when Lucky excused himself to use the restroom. Shortly after, Masseria's three bodyguards disappeared from the dining room. Before Masseria realized what was happening, four gunmen burst into the restaurant. They fired a volley of bullets, hitting Masseria in the back, head, and chest. In the aftermath of the murder, the police couldn't find a suspect to arrest. When they asked Lucky if he'd seen anything, he'd claimed he'd missed the whole thing. He said he was in the bathroom washing his hands. With Masseria out of the way, Maranzano easily took control of the New York City Mafia. He established Lucky as the new leader of Masseria's old gang and himself as Capo di Tutti Capi, the boss of all the bosses. He'd won the Castellamarise War, but only for a short time. The conflict was two power struggles folded into one. First and foremost, it was a fight to control New York City and the lucrative prohibition industry. 
But at its core, the war was also fought between the old guard of the Cosa Nostra and the new, modern Italian-American mafia. American gangsters often flouted the rules of the traditional Cosa Nostra. Rather than observing the code of Omerta, they treated the mafia like an open secret. Mobsters like Al Capone were known for their womanizing, and many spoke openly about their mob ties as a show of intimidation. The boss of bosses, old-school Maranzano, was uncomfortable with how public the mafia's business had become. He wanted to return to the strict discipline of the Sicilian Cosa Nostra, including implementing the Draconian Code of Omerta. But Lucky knew Maranzano's plan wouldn't work. Lucky, a native Sicilian himself, was convinced that such practices would only hurt business. They weren't in the old country and didn't have the complete dominance of church, state, and police that the Cosa Nostra had in Sicily. And most of all, he resented the idea of Maranzano claiming power over the entire country's underworld. So, on September 10, 1931, Lucky sent a team of Jewish gangsters disguised as IRS agents to Maranzano's offices. The hitmen took Maranzano to a back room where they shot and stabbed the boss of bosses to death. Less than five months after coming to power, the king of the American mafia had been dethroned. Rather than declaring himself Capo di Tutti Capi, Lucky Luciano helped establish his own American version of the commission, a network of criminal families to divide organized crime in New York. The United States finally had its own unique version of the Cosa Nostra. And at the center of criminal power in the United States, Lucky was poised to reunite the two halves of the Cosa Nostra into a criminal conspiracy that would span the globe. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with part two, where we follow the rebirth of the Cosa Nostra as a global phenomenon. For more information on the Cosa Nostra, amongst the many sources we used, we found Cosa Nostra, a history of the Sicilian Mafia by John Dickey, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm -hmm.